Welcome to the Foreign Affairs Inbox, the election edition. My name is Robin Gloss, and I'm a junior majoring in international affairs and economics at the Elliott School. This season, my co-host Lucas Miller and I are bringing you a safe and socially distanced season of the Foreign Affairs Inbox. We're calling it the election edition. We're going to look at the U.S. presidential election and how it relates to big questions in international affairs. As always, we'll have experts helping us engage on complex topics. This week, I'm going to speak with a professor on a topic that I find very interesting. Today, I'm joined by David Shin, a professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs. Dr. Shin was a Foreign Service officer with the U.S. Department of State for 37 years, where he worked across the continent and as an ambassador to Ethiopia and Burkina Faso. He has taught at the Elliott School of International Affairs since 2001, and his current research focuses on great power competition and relations between the Horn of Africa and Gulf states. Dr. Shin, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm happy to join you, Robin. So something that has attracted a lot of attention under the Trump administration has been how perceptions of the United States have shifted across the world. To start us off, can you talk a bit about what that looks like in Africa? In the case of Africa, I think there have been probably fewer shifts of perception than in many other parts of the world. Uh, there is a certain constancy in terms of uh, U.S. perceptions of Africa, in part because it's always been given the lowest priority in our foreign policy. And when you have a, a low priority attached to it, there tends to be less uh, attention given to policy, and there tends to be less shift in points of view. If you look at the Trump administration, which has taken less interest in Africa than most uh, recent administrations, I don't see that much change in perception. Americans particularly tend to focus on the negative stories that come out of Africa because they're the ones that are highlighted in the international media, which means things like civil war and famine and rioting and uh, death and destruction. Uh, those kinds of uh, topics get fairly well covered in the international media. Uh, the things that don't get covered are economic development, countries that are doing well, uh, the human interest stories that have a positive ending. Uh, but that's been a problem that goes way back in time. It has nothing to do with the Trump administration. Do you think there's any chance that there's a shift in that in the Biden administration? And... Um, the incoming administration does take steps to focus on Africa in its foreign policy? I think there will be a change uh, with the Biden administration in that there will be more attention given to Africa than we've seen in the last three and a half years in the Trump administration. Uh, having said that, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say it will be in focus of U.S. policy. But if you take the Afri Africa as a continent, all 54 countries, and that's a lot of countries, uh, it has been very hard for the United States to focus on the entire continent at any point in time. Quite certain that the kinds of people who will be going in to the international affairs uh, side of the Biden administration are going to take a greater interest in Africa than has been the case with the Trump administration, where there have been really very few members of, uh, of his senior staff that have shown any interest in um, Africa. Do you think that lack of interest in foreign policy in Africa from the American side is something that 
countries in Africa recognize and maybe leads them to look to either multilateral institutions, countries that might be able to provide support, like we've seen a lot of Chinese investment in recent years? Well, there's no question about what that is the case. Um, I, I still travel fairly frequently to Africa and interact with a lot of African officials and members of civil society. And I can assure you that I hear that from them. Uh, I've certainly heard that over the last three and a half years where the uh, people I've been in touch with have commented on the relative uh, lack of interest in the continent by the Trump administration. Uh, this is not an uncommon problem in other administrations where there have been lapses of, of interest, but I would say it has been more severe in the last three and a half years. And this has indeed led to um, a greater interest by the Africans in looking at other sources of support. And if the Europeans are also backing away to some extent, as they are, uh, that means you look to countries like uh, China or the Gulf states, um, maybe India, uh, possibly Russia, Turkey. Uh, there are a number of them out there that are playing a more important role in Africa today than was the case 10, 20 years ago. China is the outstanding case. Uh, it is far more engaged than any of the others that I cited. Can you talk a bit about the way China's influence in the region appears, not necessarily in terms of economic support, but on a more political front? Sure. China is engaged across all different aspects of, of international engagement uh, in Africa. Most um, frequently on the economic side, that's the one you, you hear about most often, but also on the political, military, and soft power side. Uh, looking particularly at the political side, the, um, the Communist Party of China, for example, has developed uh, some fairly strong relationships with ruling parties in certain African countries. And they make a great effort to cultivate those relationships by having high-level visits between members of the Communist Party and their their uh, kind of the counterpart leaders of African political parties going both directions. It is Communist Party officials going to African countries, uh, political party leaders from Africa going to China. There's a certain amount of uh, support that is offered by the Communist Party of China to ruling parties in Africa. I've been in, in uh, political party offices, for example, in African countries where the, uh, the people that I'm meeting with are proud to show me the computer that was donated by uh, China or the Communist Party or the books that were presented or the, the, uh, the copy paper or supplies, whatever the case may be. Uh, the political relationship is very strong. And then at the, at the governmental level, it's even greater. There are far more high-level visits between African leaders and Chinese leaders than there are between African leaders and American leaders, for example. And China is constantly sending uh, its senior governmental personnel to Africa uh, to make formal visits, and they're constantly receiving of persons, African leaders, uh, to reciprocate. One of the statistics I like to quote uh, in terms of making this point is every year since 1991, without exception, the Chinese foreign minister has made his first overseas visit in an African country before going to any other country in the world. 
That's done by design. That's not an accident. 1991 was a long time ago. And to keep that up, you send a real message. Um, the Africans understand that China is paying attention to us at a very high level. No other country uh, in the world can, can match that, that statement. I think it's interesting to see the way that China prioritizes its international relations um, and connections with different countries. You know, the nature of the relationship over the years, over the decades, has changed significantly. I can go back to the, the early part of modern China's interaction with Africa. It was mainly supporting African liberation movements in Southern Africa. Uh, and it wasn't uh, a, a great deal of assistance they were offering. It was quite limited. Usually uh, free uh, military equipment, small quantities of it, some military training in China for members of liberation groups. And it was also very ideological, ideologically focused, where they were interested in cultivating what they considered to be like-minded African movements. Now, a lot of those African movements were nothing more than an effort to get rid of colonialism. But in the mind of, um, of China, that seemed to be a group that was like-minded. But nevertheless, they wanted to get rid of the colonial power and did. And uh, China saw them as uh, like-minded partners. But that, that, of course, changed with the passage of time. These countries became independent and developed their own ideas as to how they wanted to run their politics. Some of them actually became relatively conservative governments. Others did not. Others were more on the leftist side of, of the political spectrum. And China had to adapt its... Um, political relationships accordingly. I know increasingly the United States has sort of turned away from trying to maintain positive relations with China, and there's certainly a sense of competition between the two nations. Do you see Africa as a place where that competition could play out? Well, it is, it's playing out already, uh, not because the Africans want it to play out. They're really not much interested in U.S.-China competition, uh, particularly if it forces them to choose a side. They don't want to choose a side. They would like to get what they can from both China and the United States. And I can understand that. Uh, it's in their national interest to pursue a policy like that. The, the policy of the Trump administration has been to make China a major feature of its policy in Africa and to emphasize the competition uh, this is something that has frankly troubled me a bit because we compete at the commercial level with all countries of the world, with China, the United Kingdom, Germany, Russia, everyone. We're all competing for trade and, and for foreign investment, for winning of contracts. That's normal. But when you carry that competition into the political realm, then it gets you into some difficulties that I think are regrettable. Of course, it's the African countries to try to make decisions as to whom they're going to support. Uh, to some extent, China is doing the same thing. Uh, China will put uh, resolutions before the uh, Third Committee of the United Nations, and recently, in October, actually, of this year, uh, China put one forward which criticized the human rights policies of the United States and asked other countries to sign on. They actually got nine African countries to sign on, criticizing U.S. human rights policies. Now, we have things to criticize in the U.S. Don't misunderstand me. To talk about the pot uh, calling the kettle black here, uh, there are plenty of things to criticize in China, too. So, now, what are you doing uh, going out and seeking African support to criticize U.S. human rights when your own, own record isn't very, 
very spiffy. That's a really interesting demonstration of the way that soft power can translate into sort of how norms are set on an international scale. It's definitely interesting to see the way China is gaining power and influence in multilateral institutions. So to shift gears a little bit, we've seen the way that Donald Trump and other leaders have used COVID-19 as a political tool. Is that something that has been seen across Africa? Are there any notable instances? China's actually been using COVID-19 as a political tool also. Initially, China ran into some difficulty with the Africans for two reasons. One, everyone knows that COVID-19 originated in China. The Africans certainly know that. And they weren't very pleased with, with that, nor was anyone else in the world. Uh, China also understood that it was paying a price for having been the originator of COVID-19. But then China did something fairly smart and decided to reach out to the Africans and provide them with protective equipment uh, to share information with them to make a real pitch to try to, to send medical teams to Africa. So it, it turned a, a really bad situation into a situation that it tried to make the best of, and to some extent did. The other component of it, though, that it, it was more troubled by was the African uh, diaspora in China, which isn't that large, uh, but it's fairly significant, and it's mainly West Africans, a lot of Nigerians and, and Ghanaians, and they've ran into a situation where they were living in Guangzhou, which was a heavy concentration of the African community, where they were being discriminated against because of COVID-19, and they were being singled out uh, for bad treatment. Well, this got back to the African uh, civil society and governments very quickly, and they were very angry about it. But it uh, it was a real, um, a real problem for China to deal with. Uh, but I, I must say I give China some credit for having... Um, dealt with the COVID, with the, with the medical part of the problem, relatively successfully by engaging so deeply with the Africans uh, on trying to help them deal with COVID-19. Although the United States, as I understand it, has provided more funding for African countries to combat COVID-19. But our, our propaganda game isn't half of what the Chinese propaganda game is, and we're getting very little credit for it. But we've actually done a great deal in terms of funding African governments to combat COVID-19. But you would never know it. Uh, talking to African countries, they don't hear much about it. And when you're providing funding to African health ministries, it's just not as sexy as a Chinese airplane flying in full of masks uh, that are unloaded with all the cameras running. The United States passing funding to the health ministry uh, doesn't cut it. Um, no one sees that, no one cares. Taking a more domestic look at things uh, across the continent, are there countries that have or have not responded to COVID-19 particularly well? The short answer to the question is yes. The problem is that I would almost have to be on the ground in Africa to know which ones have done particularly well and which ones have done poorly. Um, but the other countries in Africa literally would have to look at on a one-on-one -on -one basis and I'm just not close enough to them to know whether they have done well or not so well. Uh, it would be hard to identify a country in Africa that has done any worse than the United States has done, however. I think we're at the bottom of the list. 
So we've talked a lot about broad trends across Africa and either based on your regional expertise or what's happening in the news, do you think there's anything worth highlighting on a country by country basis that's particularly interesting or likely to change significantly over the next few years? It's very dangerous to generalize about Africa. Anyone who tries to generalize is going to get into trouble pretty quickly. Um, one of the things that everyone does follow with interest is the, the overall African economic growth rate, the GDP growth rate. And until COVID-19 and until the debt crisis, uh, it was doing very well. Africa had a quite a good record for the over the 10 years or so prior to COVID on GDP growth rate. It was starting to slow down even before COVID. And now it's slowing down dramatically because it's not only COVID that it's grappling with, but it's the, uh, the debt problem in many countries, not every country, but, but too many of them. It's going to be very important to uh, try to turn that situation around, one, by getting beyond COVID, and two, uh, coming up with some solution for the debt problem, which may be an even greater problem for Africa than, uh, than COVID. There will be a reluctance to invest in Africa if um, there is not an improvement in the GDP growth rate. Uh, trade will probably fall at the same time just because the Africans will be less able to purchase uh, from the rest of the world. And the rest of the world may find it less attractive to buy things from Africa, uh, particularly oil and minerals, which are the major exports from Africa. Um, this is a is an area of real concern in the coming uh, two, three, four years. I think eventually the, the corner will be turned and Africa can return to a pretty successful growth rate. But I'm afraid over the next couple of years, it looks a little bit grim. I'm curious to know what your perspective is on the role that international institutions play in Africa, both in terms of either humanitarian aid or more diplomatic endeavors, because I think it's something we talk a lot about in the West, but we don't see a lot of attention um, in other parts of the world. Well, international organizations play a huge role in Africa. In fact, I would say it's disproportionate to every other region or continent in the world. You can start with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, which are deeply engaged in, uh, in Africa in terms of supporting economic growth, economic development. If you look at the United Nations and all of the uh, specialized agencies of the United Nations, uh, my guess is the United Nations probably spends a greater percentage of its resources in Africa than any other continent. Everything from UN peacekeeping operations, most of which have been in Africa, uh, most UN peacekeepers over there, the history of peacekeeping have been in Africa. If you look at uh, specialized agencies like uh, UNHCR, UN High Commission for Refugees, uh, Africa has been very high on the list of uh, support by UNHCR to support refugee movements. Uh, actually, Africa in the last couple of years moved away from being the number one area. The Middle East replaced Africa in terms of refugees. UNICEF, another organization, very active in Africa. Uh, the World Health Organization has a, a major role in Africa. 
terms of supporting um, health uh, ministries throughout the African continent. The World Food Program uh, has a, a major role in Africa, providing emergency food aid, as it is doing today in, in places like Somalia, uh, Ethiopia, I believe in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, all of these agencies are, um, I think, critical to African uh, humanitarian support and African development. And I haven't even mentioned a lot of the technical organizations like the uh, International Meteorological Association, uh, Atomic Energy Agency. All of them. Africa responds or, or has engagement with all of these organizations too. To what extent has the United States withdrawal or decreased commitment to organizations like the World Health Organization uh, impacted their ability to provide aid? Uh, so far, the United States has um, really only withdrawn from two organizations, uh, two UN organizations. Uh, one is the, um, the Human Rights uh, Council, and that has probably not had a direct impact on Africa. Uh, in fact, it's been something of an advantage for those countries in Africa that are human rights challenged and that the United States is no longer there to hector them. The other major organization that the United States has left, the World Health Organization, it only recently departed from WHO. If it stays out of WHO, it will definitely have an impact because the U.S. is the single largest provider of funding. Uh, the Biden administration has made very clear it's one of the first things they will do is to rejoin the WHO, and I commend them for that. Where do you see the potential for the United States to have most influence in Africa? Is it on economic or diplomatic or human rights issues? The best thing the United States can do is to to lead by example and to demonstrate to the world that democracy works in the United States and that we are a country that can solve our own problems, uh, including the problem of, of racial disparity, uh, that we can run our government democratically, and effectively, and efficiently, that we can be of help to other countries around the world and work collaboratively with them. And if we can accomplish all of that, and that's a big order, we will get African support almost automatically without even having to do much for it. Uh, they will see the United States for what it is or what it can be. But I think what we really need to do is to show that we have a democracy that really works. We can solve our own problems. The Africans can look at us by example and say, let's be like more like them. They don't have to be exactly like us. They'll have their own systems of government and they'll have their own cultural characteristics. But if they can see that the United States is a country that works and that is economically successful and that... Uh, really does allow for equality of its people, uh, that sends an enormous message. The last thing I want to ask is, as we're looking to the next four years, I know you already mentioned GDP growth, but if you are going to pick another two or three trends or things to watch out for that are going to be impactful in shaping international affairs in Africa or the U.S. relationship with the continent, what would those be? One of the things that I would like see done to a greater extent in the future is the expansion of the people-to-people -people contact between the United States and Africa, including U.S. government support for some of those activities. Uh, 
In other words, having more students in from Africa coming to the United States, some perhaps supported by with government support, like the Fulbright program, which is a very small program, but one that can easily be increased, and in my view should be increased. Uh, support for those parts of the U.S. government that encourage um, visits from African countries uh, by Africans and also encourage and, and help finance uh, visits to Africa by American groups. They can be cultural groups, they can be entertainment groups, they can be academic uh, specialists, and all kinds of people. Uh, we're, we do this very well, and unfortunately we have backed away from it, and I would I would like to see that as a feature of, of the U.S.-Africa um, relationship in the coming years. The, the other thing that uh, I think is important is that we need to we need to listen more and preach less. We're really good at preaching in the United States. Uh, we're not always really good listeners. And if we would do, spend a little more time listening, we don't have to agree with what we're hearing, but just at least listening and hearing what is being said on the other side and then making our own decision whether it makes sense or not uh, that too, I think, would work to our advantage in terms of our, our relationships with Africa. The other trend lines in Africa would, would uh, center around their ability to deal with uh, growing elements of terrorism in the country, uh, which is very worrisome. I think the Africans are struggling in how they deal with that. The U.S. Has, has been helpful, has tried to be helpful in dealing with some of these organizations. Sometimes we've done it well, sometimes not so well. This is going to be very much a continuing problem in the coming years. And the Africans themselves are going to have to figure out how to deal with it. And this may mean such things as reducing corruption in African countries, for example, or having more equitable African societies. That's not something the U.S. can do much about. Uh, Africans have got to solve that problem. Uh, but this is going to be a continuing area to watch uh, in the coming years. That's very interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I thought this was a really interesting conversation and I know it's given me a lot to think about. Sure, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Foreign Affairs Inbox Election Edition. Check out our past episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions for our team or our guests, DM the Elliott School on social media or send us an email at rsvpesia at gwu.edu. Stay healthy.